So let's start by reading a little bit of Ezekiel um, to get us into it. And then um, while, I'm, while we're doing that, I will get a couple of things sorted here. So could somebody please read for us Ezekiel chapter 2, which is 10 verses. So just uh, the whole of Ezekiel chapter 2. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, as for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now, when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me and there was writing on the inside and on the outside and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Thank you very much. So I don't know how you feel about approaching Ezekiel um, as we do this term. It might feel a little bit um, unobvious, particularly in the middle of a, a pandemic. Um, is this really the, 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 the sort of the thing that, that God's people need at this time? Um, might be one thought going through us. Uh, it might be a bit intimidating. It's 48 chapters. Um, I wonder if you've read it. I'd encourage you to do so if you haven't read it recently. Um, in fact, if you're doing the Old Testament reading plan, you will be reading it anyway um, in, in a few weeks' time. We're actually in Jeremiah, which is another uh, thing altogether. Um, sort of similar in terms of uh, apparent difficulty as you come to it. But Ezekiel's next. So um, it can be intimidating as you approach a book like this. Um, and it is easy to feel like um, uh, you might be getting a bit lost as you go in the middle, um, uh, as you go through it. It can sometimes feel a bit like it's a bit repetitive. Um, and, you know, why are we hearing this again? What's the difference between this and the last time I heard it and all that kind of thing in, in the book? Um, and through all that then, how does this really help Christians in the 21st century? Um, so the, uh, what we're, why, why would we do this then? Well, because um, we do believe all scripture is God breathed. We believe that God has given us all of the Bible for a reason. Um, the Bible is not just the bits that we are more familiar with. It is all of it. Um, and uh, therefore, there will be things here which can um, help us as we uh, live our lives today. 
Um, all scriptures God breathes useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, so let's see how this book does that, I suppose is the point. Um, it's a chance as well to look at something in a bit more depth. Um, we, uh, you know, I suppose we could try and look at something like Ezekiel in sermons on a Sunday, um, but which throws up a load of other um, issues. Uh, but this is a way of uh, doing something that gets us into something less familiar, that stretches us a bit. Um, but we want to do it without getting too bogged down. So this is not going to be either tonight, but, but even in, in the small groups through this term, it's not going to be a verse by verse kind of um, tearing apart of every tiny little bit. We want to try and keep going through the book to get a, a, a sense of the overall message um, so that we are able to understand uh, the individual parts. And that's certainly what we're trying to do tonight. So it's just try and get a, a very broad overview of um, uh, of where uh, how it all fits together. So what we're going to do now is think, how does Ezekiel fit into the rest of the Bible as a starting point? So I thought I'd just challenge myself a little bit and try and put these um, things into the right order. And you can, if I get it wrong, you can unmute and tell me as we go through. So uh, this is just how does the whole Bible timeline, particularly the Old Testament timeline, fit together? Um, you know, where are we? So we start in the beginning. We start with creation. So I'm going to stick this over here. Can you see this? Everyone see what see what's happening? Uh, creation. Then um, we have the fall. Adam and Eve rebel against God and um, they are sent out of the Garden of Eden. And that's Genesis 1 to 3. And we then start the story of um, salvation and redemption. And we come pretty quickly to Abraham. And after that, after some more stuff in the book of Genesis, which we won't go into, we, we come to Moses and the Exodus and what follows that and the giving of the law. So what's the Exodus? It's the rescue from Egypt, uh, from slavery. It's the original uh, redemption story, the Passover lamb, the, the rescue, the, the, the chance for God's people to start to be established as with their own identity as God's people, Israel, and they are taken on a journey through the promise uh, to, to the promised land through the desert. They have to learn to trust the God who saved them. They're given the law to show them how to live. And that takes up the rest of the Pentateuch up to Deuteronomy. We then have, uh, we're, we're then after a bit of rebellion and stuff along the way, um, we are uh, finally at the edge of the promised land and we come to Joshua and uh, he takes um, he leads the people into the promised land that's followed by a period in which the judges rule and uh, do they do a are things sort of good or bad under the judges well they're kind of mixed but often bad and um, there's a cycle of of things going wrong as people um uh, as God's people uh, cry out for deliverance from their enemies and they're given um, a judge to, to help them, to deliver them, the, uh, the, that, that all goes well and they defeat their enemies for a short while and then they get complacent and God 
uh, hands them over again to their enemies because they're not learning to trust him as their God and their king. Um, fast forward a bit more after the judges, they ask for a king, as we looked at in 1 Samuel, and we get after King Saul to King David. And um, we, that's a pretty key moment in the history of Israel, followed obviously by King Solomon. And maybe we might say, if we sort of know a bit about the, the history of the Old Testament, we think, okay, so far so good. It now starts to get a little bit more murky. Um, at least it does for me, it may well do for you. So this is where we really have to concentrate. So after King Solomon, what happens to the civil war? Israel splits in two and you get this strange thing where you've got the, the northern tribes, the te- roughly the, the, the 10 northern tribes and, the, um, or the, and, and then the two southern, two and a half. It's Judah, Benjamin and the half tribe Manasseh are the southern kingdom. They are Judah. They're referred to as Judah, but it includes actually the two and a half. And then the northern tribes together continue to be referred to as Israel. So you get this Israel and Judah split after King Solomon because they've fallen out about um, how to worship God and various other things. And um, they are then living um, a kind of uh, against each other. They are um, uh, not at peace with each other. What happens then is the prophets start to preach to the northern tribes and sort of call them back to, um, to God before um, Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom and takes prisoners into exile. Now, in terms of years and when this happens, obviously, the further back you go, the, the slightly more um, uncertain the, the historians are about exactly when, when these things happened. But... Um, we think that King Solomon came to the throne in 922 BC, 922 BC. Um, And then quite easy to remember because 200 years later, Assyria destroys the Northern Kingdom, takes prisoners into exile in 722 BC. So those those dates are are easy to remember. In fact, sorry, it's not King Solomon comes to the throne. It's King Solomon. It's the, the... the end of King Solomon's reign is 922. I think I've got that right. So it's the end of King Solomon's reign. Civil war is 922. Assyria destroys the Northern Kingdom and takes prisoners to exile. 722. Um, after that, what happens? Well, with them, uh, we t- our attention turns to the southern tribes. So if you're thinking of the Old Testament, you've got uh, the, the prophets preaching to the northern tribes is all the minor prophets, r- roughly speaking, you know, you'll be, there's a couple of exceptions within that, but r- broadly speaking, you've got northern tribes being addressed. And then you've got um, the big fat prophet books, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, they are uh, uh, preaching to the southern tribes, to, to Judah. Um, but the northern tribes are still in view and vice versa. So it's not as if it's not quite as neat as that, but there is a sort of basics division between them. So the longer material goes with Judah, who are the remnant, who are the focus of the promises. Um, but they don't listen either. So um, in five, nine, five, no, five, eight, seven BC or five, eight, six um, following a siege, there is uh, Babylon comes, destroys Jerusalem, takes prisoners into exile. And there is a, an exile which lasts roughly 70 years, but they start to come back a bit before that. 
as King Cyrus sends people back to Jerusalem. So the exile is when, during the exile is when you get the book of Daniel. And um, after that, King Cyrus sends prisoners back to Jerusalem. The temple is rebuilt and you get Ezra, Nehemiah um, and uh, Haggai. And you then have roughly a 400 year silence, no prophets and they're waiting. And Malachi is right at the end of all that time um, kind of saying, the you know, we're waiting now for the king to come. And then finally, 400 years later, um, John the Baptist and then Jesus arrive. Now, you know, there's lots of holes in putting it together like that. It's only very rough. But can you see that there is Ezekiel? Can you see where Ezekiel fits in? Um, this is the timeline of Israel's history. And we need to kind of do this rather than just pick up the book and read it, because so much of what happens in Ezekiel um, is rooted in the history of God's people. You need to understand what's happened before. You need to understand what's still to come in order to understand the message of the book. So um, that is the you know wh wh where we're at now. Um, they are um, in terms of the actual original audience for the book of Ezekiel. Well, obviously the the people heard. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the the prophecies but this book has also been put together um, after the prophecies have been heard um, and so it, it, it you can imagine an original or a second original audience reading it in the form that it actually has now in in chapters 1 to 48 as being the, the God's people in they've they've now arrived in exile so the events that are talked about in the book have happened and they are now in exile looking back and thinking, how does this speak? Um, you know, how does this speak to us? Because we are now questioning God's power. We're questioning his justice. We're questioning his faithfulness because we're in exile. And we're thinking, what on earth is happening? And the book of Ezekiel then helps them to understand this is what has happened to us. This is why it's happened. And this is how um, we, um, th th this is the hope for us that we have um, even while we're in exile. Um, so um, th th there's all those kinds of things going on. We then, so let, let's now come to um, look at the, 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 how the book splits up. So you, you, you can divide the book up roughly into chapters one to 24 chapters 25 to 32 and then chapters 33 to 48 and that's what you can see on the handout um, if you can't see the handout it really what it says is chapters 1 to 24 um, which I've which I've titled um, if God is against you who can be for you chapters 25 to 32 is your God too small and chapters 33 to 48 where is your hope so chapters 1 to 24, um, uh, if God is against you, who can be for you? 25 to 32, is your God too small? Chapters 33 to 48, where is your hope? So briefly, any, any questions so far on what we've said? Anybody want to raise a hand um, to any questions of clarification before we get into the, the details of 1 to 24 and, and beyond? I've got a question in terms of uh, lit, uh, literature, um, 
the the genre of the book it's got some sort of quite difficult visions yeah and things like that how to get our head, heads around uh, uh, those visions and things like that yeah that's that's really helpful um should we come back to that when we've when we've looked a little bit more detail at the whole book but you're right i mean a lot of the book is so there's, there's narrative in the book there's there's poetry um and there is um uh, uh there is uh, stuff that is happening um uh, in the future as well so there's sort of prophetic visions of uh, at the end towards the end of the book as well so should we should we come back to that um and um Let's now look at chapters one to 24. So, um, and, and, and think about those. These chapters cover seven years from uh, 597 to 590 BC, roughly. Okay, so, so 587 was the, um, uh, the date when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and, um, well, the, the, um, the, uh, there was a siege and then the, the uh, exiles uh, and then God's people were taken to exile so this is before that but it's pretty close to it okay so it's 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 the time leading up to it and if you sit down and read chapters 1 to 24 you will find um, they are not easy to read and they're not particularly happy reading so um, let's uh, we, we heard chapter 2 read earlier and um what i wanted to do was put us briefly into breakout rooms and uh, just for three or four minutes and what i want you to do is answer these questions so chapter two how does god feel about israel and just get a sense of that from the um the chapter that we heard have a look at that again um and i also want you to look um, together briefly at chapter 14 verse 21 and chapter 16 verses 30 to 34 okay now could somebody just because because it will just involve lots of people reading that why don't we just read those together now so can somebody read chapter 14 verse 21 and can somebody else read chapter 16 verse 30 to 34 and um, the idea of these is to give you a sense of the tone of the kinds of things that God is saying to his people in these verses. Tom, just before that, can I ask a question? Sorry, I, yeah. I'm back in the original part. I, I'm kind of confused around the timing of, did, did I hear you right that say that he spoke all these words before they went into exile? Yes. Because most of what I see, I thought was in exile in most of his ministry. So uh, he, um, well, it's, yes, it's, it, um the the visions start um in the the earliest so i think i think what's going on is he he is he is amongst the first that has gone into exile but he's prophesying to jerusalem and saying this is um, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't listen. So you're, you're in a position where you started to see, look, God's people are being taken away and this is going to happen to you if you do not repent as well. 
So Jerusalem itself has not fallen. But if you start by uh, in chapter one, verse one, in the 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Um, so he himself has been taken into Babylon, but um, Jerusalem itself is still standing. Um, thank you. And, and so he's, he's yeah, thank you. That's, that's helpful clarification. Um, yeah, so, but I think, I think when, when people put piece it all together, that's why they end up saying it's, it's 597 to 590 in chapters 1 to 24, um, but recognising the final kind of, and, and, you know, 587 is when the temple itself gets destroyed. So, you know, it's utterly cataclysmic for the people of God at that, by that stage. So this is sort of looking forward to, to the, the dreadful things that are about to happen and warning them, if you don't do anything about it, dreadful stuff is going to happen. So can we, so can we, can we just, can somebody just read 1421 and somebody read 1630 to 34? I read 1421. Thank you. Yep. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague to kill its men and their animals? Thank you. And then chapter 16, verse 30 to 34. I can read that. Go for it. How weak-willed you are, declares the sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like brazen a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square. You were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for you, for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, come to you from, whoops, from, so in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your, for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. How does God feel about Israel? Broad terms from, from, from chapter two. And what do you make of the language that you see in, in those verses that we've just heard? We're all quite miserable. Yeah, I think that, that, that sums it up, doesn't it? In, in one sense, it's, it's quite um, uh, full on. It is a, um, a poetically um, negative and um, uh, he's, he's finding flowery ways to say, um, I really am not happy with the way that you have been um, living. You've been rebellious. You're turning your backs on me. Um, so and and that is just a few verses out of 24 chapters um, where we see a collection of signs visions pictures oracles 
all in various ways declaring judgment against Jerusalem. Um, and, and sometimes it's pretty shocking. So chapter 16 and chapter 23 in particular have got pretty vivid descriptions of prostitution and promiscuity, which are used as um, images of um, Israel's unfaithfulness. So she is God's unfaithful bride. Um, and I think what, what can surprise us and shock us as New Testament, you know, modern readers is the, the lack of, on the surface of things of any language of love and forgiveness in these chapters. Because we kind of think, you know, okay, you, you know, you can do a bit of warning and you can do a bit of challenge and you can do a bit of judgment, but come on, let's get back to the love. And that, that's really what we, we want to hear. Now, there is a little bit. If you go really looking for it, you will find a li little tiny glimmers of hope. Um, but the overall message in chapters 1 to 24 is that God, even God's people have no grounds for optimism whatsoever as long as his people continue in rebellion against God. So if, you, if you're going to rebel against the God who has made you and saved you, do not be optimistic. That is the, the message. It, it will not be all right in the end. So we, we love Romans 8 and we love Paul saying, you know, if God is for you, who can be against you? And it's wonderful and it's really, and it is wonderful. Um, it's a, one of my, my favourite verses in the Bible. But in one sense, as, as we've titled this, this is saying, if God is against you, well, who can be for you? Yeah, and if you are against God, um, there is no hope. There is no hope. There's a repeated refrain that comes through these um, chapters. I don't know if um, you, you, you've spotted it, if you've looked at these chapters before, but again and again and again, it says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Um, now, do you know where else that comes? It comes uh, in the book of Exodus. And it comes there referring to um, Egypt and Pharaoh knowing that God is the Lord. And how is God going to do that? Well, he's going to bring his plagues and he's going to bring um, his people out of um, slavery. And it's all so that, you know, Egypt and Pharaoh are put in their place and they know that God is the Lord, a God that you can't mess with. But can you see now that message, that same message that was given to God's enemies in Exodus is being given now directly to his people. You need to know. It's not just the God's enemies, you know, those people out there in the world who've been um, naughty and doing things bad you know they're the ones that need to hear this no you need to hear this you need to know what God is like you need to understand his character you need to understand that he can't be messed with and yet also um, even within these chapters and then a, a little bit further on in the book as well it just begins to be clear with these tiny little glimmers of hope um, which if you're if you're taking notes you can see in, in 11 14 to 21 um, chapter 17, 22 to 24, and chapter 20, 32 to 44, you can just begin to see that, you know, while there's no hope if God is against you because of your sin, there is still hope in God if you return to him in repentance. So no hope if you persist in sin, but you can, if you return to him in repentance, well, there may be hope then. The, so in other words, the only grounds for hope is God himself. You can't flee from him. There is nowhere else to go 
but you can flee to him. Now, I think we might ask, well, you know, why is this so necessary? Why, do, why is this in the Bible? Why do we need to bang on about judgment? And I think one answer to that is the more we understand the problem between us and God, the better we understand and appreciate the solution. So who are you more you know, grateful for? Are you more grateful for the, the doctor who gives you paracetamol because you've got a headache or the one who gives you life-saving chemotherapy for cancer? Uh, you know, the more you understand the grave danger that you're in, the more you will marvel when you find rescue from it. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's worth, you know, and then, then we might ask, okay, well, you know, I, I appreciate that in general, but why do we need to hear this? You know, we're in, we're in dire circumstances at the moment, someone might say, you know, the, 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 with the whole pandemic and everything else. And I think the book of Ezekiel and, and, and places like it are reminding us, actually, have we remembered that all that's going wrong in the world and you know in, in, in the wider world stage and all the things that are getting on the news and disturbing us and worrying us actually that these things are just a symptom of the deepest greatest problem and uh we need to not be fooled into thinking the greatest problem we face is the pandemic and if we can solve that everything will be fine again now that is that isn't true and th th this is here to remind us the deepest problem we face is between us and the God who made us. And I guess one of the reasons that we might get distracted and find that other problems seem far greater than the one between us and God may be that we've lost sight of what we've been saved from. Do you see? So we, 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 we you know, we, we get more excited about vaccines or about um the uh you know what we need to do in order to get back to normal than we get about why jesus needed to die if we think that really the greatest problem we face is sickness and illness rather than realizing it's sin and our rebellion against god um, and that is what needs to be dealt with and that is what jesus has dealt with but before we can get to jesus we need to understand the problem so that is chapters 1 to 24 now um don't worry when we come to do this in the small groups the way that the book that's taking us through this it, it works we're not going to be going through chapters 1 to 24 verse by verse absorbing everything it has to say we can't possibly do that um so we will be you know going proceeding at pace and picking out the um key bits of it to, to, to stop at um, but uh, that, it's worth reading to get the full sense of it. Okay, so that's 1 to 24. Then, you, then we move to chapters 25 to 32, which is, is your God too small? And in these chapters, God turns from Israel and, well, and God's people, and Judah rather, he turns to the surrounding nations. So have a look at uh, chapter 29 and uh, verses 6 to 16. Then all who live in Egypt will know that I am the Lord. You have been a staff of reed for the house of Israel. When they grasped you with their hands, you splintered and you tore open their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and their backs were wrenched. 
Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will bring a sword against you and kill your men and their animals. Egypt will become a desolate wasteland. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said the Nile is mine, I made it. Therefore, I am against you and against your streams. And I will make the land of Egypt a ruin and a desolate waste from Migdal to Aswan, as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man or animal will pass through it. No one will live there for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate among devastated lands and her cities will lie desolate for 40 years among ruined cities. And I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them through the countries. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. At the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the nations where they were scattered. I will bring them back from captivity and return them to upper Egypt, the land of their ancestry. There they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowliest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself above the other nations. I will make it so weak that it will never again rule over the nations. Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel. It will be a reminder of their sin in turning to her for help. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. I want you to look at those um, verses and I want you to simply answer, what is God's judgment against Egypt and why? What is God's judgment against Egypt and why? So anyone wants to feedback the wisdom of their group very briefly? We, we had a question in our group. Yes. Uh, what, why, yeah, why is God judging Egypt now? Is it just because they've been oppressing Israel for the previous hundreds of years? Or is it referring yeah, back I mean, to the captivity when there's rights in captivity? That's, that's a really good question, actually, because um, it's, it's interesting to ask who, who's actually hearing this. Who's this for? So this is, a, this is a, an oracle against Egypt that, um, uh, and, and in one sense, it is, if you look in 29 verse 2, it, the word has come to Ezekiel, and um, he is told to set his face against Pharaoh, and prophesy against him and speak to him and go to him and say but this is a this is now in a book that is Israel's book so this isn't just sort of ended up in some book that stays in Egypt delivered to Egypt so this is this is a message that God's people need to hear about their enemies as much as their enemies need to hear so it is you know it is for the enemies but it's also for God's people but let's so, so let's cut let's let's think about that again in one second what actually is the, the the message and and why so he's, he's going to punish <clears throat> egypt because israel have put their confidence in them instead of god and they they they've also substituted themselves in place of god yes exactly thank you so it's a mixture of their own rebellion and their own just sheer pride and sense of you know we're the guys and whatever we we can do whatever we like and uh, often, you know, with Egypt throughout the Bible, it's often to do with the fact we've got the Nile. And when you've got the Nile, that means you've got pretty much guaranteed fertile land either side of the river. And so you're like, you know, bring it on. We can survive anything because we've got the Nile. And so um, that, that leads to a kind of pride that God is, you know, and you, you, if you compare we've got the Nile with God taking his people through the desert where there is no Nile and there's no water, what is, what is God wanting human beings to learn is that you have to trust him and not yourselves. And that is, you know, it's a key part of what it means to be human is not to depend on yourself, 
but to depend on him. So Egypt don't do that. So they are setting themselves up in pride and they are judged for that. But then, as exactly as you said, towards the end as well, Egypt will no longer be a source of confidence for the people of Israel. Here's the problem. So Israel have been thinking, yeah, those guys with the Nile, they're the ones we need to trust when things get bad, rather than thinking, yeah, when it gets bad, what we need to do is get on our knees and come back to our God. Do you see? So it's, it's kind of both judging the enemies just because of their sin, but also because of the way they have led Israel astray. Um, and so what you can see here is, well, God is applying the same standards to both. He's the God of all the earth. The standards he applies to his enemies are the standards he applies to his people and vice versa in terms of the standards of, of judgment. Um, and he says to both, you will know that I am the Lord. It's that same phrase again. It's said to his people, it's said to his enemies. Um, and he says to them both, I am against you because of your sin. So he's not just a local God concerned with one local people. He is a, the God of the whole earth because he made it. And uh, what we see also here is as much as he's against the people for their rejection of him, he's, he's also, um, sorry, as much as he's against Israel for their rejection of him, he's against the nations for the way that they have treated his people. And actually this dynamic gets picked up in the New Testament. Um, uh, for example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we see again how God speaks about the way his, those who've persecuted um, Christians and he says they're going to be judged um, and they're going to get what they deserve in other words justice is going to be done so when you when Christians suffer at the hands of others they don't need to worry that justice won't be done because it will be done because God is the God of the whole earth he's not just the God of Israel he's not just the God of Christians he's the God of the whole earth so you don't need to worry you can leave the judgment to God you don't have to take it into your hands you don't have to you don't have to take up arms to kind of put things right necessarily. You don't, you know, you, you can um, trust the God who will put things right. So at times in these verses, he, he, he sounds like a jealous father who's kind of roused to defend his children. Um, but what we also see here, you know, we, in chapters one to 24, we, you know, we hear it and we read it and we kind of go, yeah, you know, not great news really, you know, bad news. And we kind of think, yeah, this, this is the bad news, but let's fast forward to hear the good news. But actually, there's always a sense, even with the judgment of God, that judgment is itself good news for the world. Because here is God and he's going to put things right. So he does care about injustice and he does care about the people who treat others badly. And he cares about abuse and he cares about the vulnerable when they are mistreated he, he cares about these things and so we need to know there is a god of judgment and so part of the message of the nations are being judged is to say to god's people you don't need to worry and you need to know that judge justice will be done and and this and this this is a point that is worth picking up sometimes when you're talking to people about judgment or if you're talking to non-christians or you're talking to you know you or anybody really who's wondering about this you say would you really rather live in the world in which there was no judgment and no justice and no final justice for sin and i think if we're honest and we think that through we think no no we long for justice and we despair when we don't see it in in our world and so um, that we, we do need to know this, that God is the God of all the earth, that, all, that justice will be done. 
um, and um, that we, we don't need to despair. So um, I guess, how, how else does this speak to us today? This kind of, how, how would this apply to us today? Well, they were Israel, as well as needing to know that their enemies would be judged and they can trust God with that and they can depend on him. They also needed to know not to rely on those enemies for themselves, didn't they? And, and you know, that, that's effectively idolatry. It's trusting in the um, other nations to deliver them instead of in God. And actually, there's a clear application there to, to Christians in the way, in the sense of who are we looking to for deliverance? Um, and, um, you know, they were thinking it's OK, you know, even if Babylon attack us and, you know, it's all very well. You, you, you saying all this judgment stuff, Ezekiel, in chapters one to 24 and saying that Jerusalem's going to fall. But, you know, when Babylon come knocking, we'll just call on Egypt. It will be fine. You know, that's their kind of response. And I guess there's a danger that we can have a similar sort of response today. And actually, we can think, you know, do you know what? I'm going to hold back some of my total reliance on God, and I'm just going to keep some of my reliance on other things. And we hold back our time or our money or our energy or, or whatever. We're thinking, I, you know, I can't quite trust God with my whole life. I need to retain some control. Um, and that is all part of the same kind of dynamic that, that is going on here and they needed to, Israel needed to know you know those idols that you're tempted to trust in and those other nations they're going to get judged and we need to know today when we're tempted to put our trust in things which aren't God those things will not last and they are going to be um, smashed by the God of the whole universe and maybe maybe just maybe this is a season in which some of those idols are being smashed for us and we are seeing uh that actually the things we thought we could rely on whether it's you know health wealth prosperity you know the sense that things ought to always get better all the time and that each year should be better than the last well actually though no, we can't put our trust in those things and maybe we're being called back to trust only in the god of of the universe the god of, of jesus christ who uh, who we can't flee from, but we can flee to. So we come now to the final section and uh, chapters 33 to 30, 48. After all this, where then is your hope? Where is your hope? So chapter 33 begins with Ezekiel appointed by God as the watchman for Israel, watching for the coming judgment of God. And at this point, the news of the fall of Jerusalem arrives and um uh, so after this point you know the, the judgment that was going to come has come and there's this is kind of watershed moment and the people are taken off into the people that remain who weren't taken off in the first wave like ezekiel but the people who are still there in jerusalem are taken off into exile and now the tone switches to one of hope and restoration so, you know, the, the point being now, just as God acted in judgment, so he will now act in salvation. For the sake of his name, God will act to bring about um, spiritual restoration. He will act to bring about political restoration for his people. And the best metaphor, that you, the best way to describe this that Ezekiel can come up with as God speaks to him is um, 
new life out of death. That is the way that the, the metaphor that is used. So if you turn to chapter 37, that is exactly what we see. So after all the judgment of the, of the, the first bit of the book, and all the kind of sense of there is absolutely no hope here because Israel had persisted and Judah persisted in their rebellion against God. Um, and it's as if God, now we hear the message, yeah, too right. Before God, you are dead. The only hope now is new life from the dead. And so chapter 37, we get this picture of the, the valley of dry bones. So the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them. And I saw a great many bones on the valley, floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. See the same refrain coming again. Uh, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying there was noise a rattling sounds and the bones came together bone to bone I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to it this is what the sovereign lord says come from the four winds O breath and breathe into these slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So can you see how this is a, a really apt picture for the people of God? You know, if you've waded through one, 32 chapters of judgment against um, God's people and, uh, and, uh, the, and watching their enemies receive the same treatment, there is no hope here. There is no hope. And that's, that, that's indeed what they say. Our bones are dried up, verse 11. Our hope is gone. We're cut off. Where is the hope? Here is the hope in the God who brings life from the dead. Do you see? Um, and so what, what this should cause us to do is to, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, to see the only hope we can possibly have in the face of this, uh, of our sin and our rebellion against the God who made us, is to throw ourselves on his mercy as the God who brings hope where there is despair and life where there is death. And what the book, the book then ends with, chapters 40 to 48 which are a vision of a new temple to replace the one that was destroyed by the Babylonians as they brought God's judgment on Israel now as David pointed out at the beginning it can be hard to know quite what to do with 40 detailed uh, sort of nine chapters of detailed instructions on how to build a temple and actually, if you really go get into it, as obviously people have, and they really looked in detail at what, the, what this is actually telling you to do, um, actually it becomes obvious this was not something that Ezekiel expected his hearers actually to build. 
because this is not something where you could go off to Ikea or down to Lawson's and get your timber and, um, you know, actually build according to these instructions. It doesn't quite work like that. You look at the measurements, they don't quite add up. Now, the point is not that these guys didn't know what they were doing with their carpentry. Okay, the point is, obviously, they did know what they're doing, they're perfectly capable of building things. But maybe this is not simply instructions for literally building another physical temple. Maybe this is therefore meant to point them forwards and say, well, it can't be talking about something that's merely physical, because it's kind of impossible to build. So it must be pointing even further forwards beyond itself, pointing to a future day when God would dwell among his people in a new way. So uh, how has that been fulfilled among us, uh, for, uh, for us? Well, it's been fulfilled in Jesus and it will, it will find its final, because it hasn't been fulfilled in Jesus, well, God dwells amongst us, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a fulfillment of the temples, a fulfillment of what is promised here. And it will find its final expression in the new heavens and the new earth as God dwells among his restored people forever. Because what do you see in Revelation 21? You see um, God coming down and um, now the dwelling of God is with men and women and uh, he will live with them and they will live with him. Do you see? So, so those final chapters are, are pointing forwards to the time when God would um, come in Jesus and beyond in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and I think, you know, you might say, well, what's the point then? Why do, why do we need to get down into sort of gates and alcoves and projecting walls and porticos and 50 cubits here and 25 cubits there and all that? Well, I think the point is you're supposed to imagine yourself in this place and just, you know, it's meant to, if you can understand what these measurements mean, you're meant to kind of go, wow. You know, if we if we kind of built this, or if this, if you, if you imagine sort of being in this thing which is being described here, you, you're at a very basic level, you would go, "Wow, this is amazing." That's the sort of basic thing, and particularly in the context of we've been wiped out, and there is no more temple in Jerusalem, and we're at the mercy of our enemies. You know, what hope is there? Oh, look at this description of what's to come. That is amazing. I am longing for that. And so it's that sort of, I think in terms of the genre and what it's trying to do to us, I think it's trying to evoke that sense of awe and wonder at the hope um, and uh, that comes in the, in the, uh, through uh, what is promised and what finds fulfillment in Jesus. Do you see? So can you see, Ezekiel might look like a, you know, a, a very big mountain to climb and in, in lots of ways it is, but if we didn't have this book, I think we would be poorer, a lot poorer. I mean, in, you know, in, in uncountable ways, but in, including in the sense of we really are given here a sense of the majesty of God, the fact that without him, there is no hope at all. The fact that that um, that, that, that really gets to the root of the problems that we face in the world that, that says, you know, stop looking around to other solutions you've just got to come back to the god who made you and you've got to stick with him through through all that's going on and then see beyond that the hope of what's to come and the glory of the god who is so um determined to point out the 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 lunacy of israel's sin and the seriousness of israel's sin of his people's sin but then beyond that to say and I love you and I'm going to raise you from the dead 
and I'm going to have you as my people in my restored creation forever. And we just get something of the, wow, this is awesome and extraordinary um, from this extraordinary book. So there we go. That is uh, uh, just to whet our appetites um, uh, for uh, what's to come. So any, any please, please, please put, uh, let's have a, just a few minutes for questions or comments. Um, Tom, could you give us um, an idea of how this differs from the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah very quickly? <laughs> Which, I mean, to me, the, all three of those books just seem like humongous. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they, yeah, I'm, they're very different. As in, they're, well, they're kind of the same, but they, they're also, they, you know, they're, they're very distinctive. I think you have to start with the historical setting for each of them and figure out who the people are and when everything's happening and they are happening at slightly different times um and and you know addressed in slightly different ways to different groups of people um so start start with if you if you're thinking i'd, I'd encourage you to go away and do that so try but because i think if you just open them and kind of read them and go oh what's going on here yeah it's really difficult so um, you can obviously get that, you know, you look in a study Bible or something will we'll give you things. But actually the books themselves, even before you do that, the books themselves will tell you where, where, where they're placed. And that's where you really need to start. So you need to start in, you know, Isaiah, um, you know, chapter one. And um, they, uh, he, you know, he, he roots himself in, in history, doesn't he? The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So essentially, this is a bit earlier than Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is right up next to when the um, exile happened. And then Jeremiah um, is starting. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's in a similar time. If you look, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, uh, through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. So um, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. So Jeremiah 2 is, is roughly the same time as um, Ezekiel uh, in terms of leading up to the point where they go into exile. Um, but different emphases, talking to, to people in different ways. Uh, Jeremiah becomes much more, um, he, gets, he gets completely caught up in this um, uh, vision of what it, well the prophecies essentially Jeremiah goes out and preaches to a people who won't listen and ends up feeling the pain of that and so you kind of get the the pain of a people who won't listen which is like Ezekiel 1 to 24 and you get the pain of a prophet preaching to those people and, then, and ending up kind of suffering the consequences of the people who won't listen in his own life and in one sense being a picture of Jesus in a similar way, um, suffering the consequences, um, but in a much greater sense of, of the what his people deserve, who won't listen to him, um, and he, he ends up suffering in their place. So, there you go. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time and this um, extraordinary book that challenges us, that um, is hard to read, but we pray that it would be a profitable time for us this term reading this extraordinary book and studying it together and seeing together 
both the, the depths of our sin and the ways we turned our backs on you in order that we can marvel at your redemption and your salvation that you've um, given us in Jesus in fulfillment of all that the, Ezekiel and the rest of the Old Testament pointed forwards to. Thank you for the hope in the face of death, um, the, the sense of a God who brings life out of death that we find in this book and pray that that would be true in our lives and that we'd then be able to bring words of hope um, to a world that needs to hear that now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.